Good evening to you all. Can you hear in the back? Tonight after a hard day of working with a difficult person, I'm sure you're in the mood for a talk on forgiveness. (laughs) Or maybe not. But in any case, you're going to get one. (laughs) So maybe I'll start with a story. When I was uh, a child, I was raised as a Catholic. And I had this family routine that every Saturday night or Saturday afternoon, um, we would go and do uh, something that's called confession at church. So those of you who are Catholics or former Catholics here uh, kind of know what this is. But my Protestant friends had had an idea about this, and they used to say, Oh, you Catholics, my mother says, you Catholics have it so easy. You can do anything you want, and then you just go and tell the priest, and he says, it's okay, and you're off the hook. Um, Would that it were so easy? Because actually what's involved in going to confession is you would would go in uh, and meet with the priest, And you would tell the priest what you'd done in the last week that were transgressions of the teachings of the church. So some of these were moral failings like, you know, violations of the Ten Commandments or the way that you might uh, think of it in this tradition would be violations of sila. And some of it was just kind of breaking church rules. Uh, things that might not necessarily be morally wrong to most people, but were at cross-purposes with the system of of teaching and training and working with the mind. And actually, when you went in, you had to remember and be able to describe what you'd done. So there was a recollection piece of this. And you would... uh, need to include a description of your intention and whether or not you understood it was morally wrong. And then another part of this was uh, you would have to feel regret for the action and a resolve not to repeat it. And assuming uh, this process met with the approval of the ministering priest, Uh, there would be the offer of forgiveness and then you'd be assigned something that was called a penance, which meant you would usually be given a certain set of prayers that you needed to say. Kind of a restitution to God and a way of, I don't know, getting you back on the the right track and clearing, uh, clearing the transgressions. And I can remember... When I came out of confession 
after having gotten absolution and I was there saying my my prayers for my uh, offenses, what a great feeling of relief there was in the mind. This feeling that the slate in a certain kind of way had been wiped clean and that there was an ability there then to actually start fresh. That a certain kind of burden was let go of. And in recalling this uh, childhood uh, experience, I really came to a renewed appreciation of the power of this. And it's easy to see why almost all major religions have some kind of teaching on forgiveness and some particular specific practices to support it. And if we consider and imagine what it would be like if there was no way to be discontinuous with past errors or harm. So if there was no way to break this chain, then error would just lead uh, inexorably to more error, one harm leading to repetition or retaliation. And on and on it would go with no place to stop, no way to rectify it, and no way to clean it up. And once the damage or harm was done, it would continue to resonate out, lasting far into the future until its natural half-life finally zeroed it out. And we can see when we think of it this way that there needs to be, for us human beings, us fallible human beings, there needs to be some sort of bridge or way back into wise relationship. And if we were going to define what forgiveness is, we could say it's something like the process of developing a skillful, unstuck relationship to the past harmful actions of ourselves or others. And this involves choosing the intention to forgive in order to end a suffering relationship with the story of what happened to the people involved, and to those current arisings which are related to it. You know, when we we think about the word forgiveness, we probably all bring to it our own religious trainings or lack of religious trainings. And there are a a lot of different words that can come up in the mind when we're considering this, this particular activity. And some of these are seemingly in opposition or even contradictory. So some of the words that might come up when we're thinking about this topic are words like acceptance and letting go, or regret, remorse, guilt and shame, or resistance, anger, withdrawal, rage, fear, judgment, condemnation, or freedom, peace, Renewal, reconciliation, duty, obligation, putting on a false face, denial, covering it up, or liberation, detachment, release. So given all these, these resonance or possible associations with this, this word forgiveness, I'd like to tease apart some things 
to see if some clarity of uh, view or understanding can arise. So to start first with the reasons to practice forgiveness. As the Buddha says, and as we know for ourselves, there is suffering in life. Sometimes we cause it. Sometimes it's inflicted on us. Sometimes both of those things are true. We're both givers and receivers in the suffering department. Sometimes we're directly responsible for suffering in a way that's culpable or blameworthy. Sometimes suffering just happens in the operation of life. We're not doing anything wrong, really. Um, there's just a collision of, of things and harm is caused. Sometimes it's just the nature of things for there to be suffering. I can remember when I was um, an adolescent and I had the experience of having a number of people in my uh, extended family to whom I was uh, very bonded get sick and die. And I can remember, you know, watching one particular uh, relative, my mo- mother's brother John, uh, with whom I uh, we lived for uh, uh, the early part of my life, uh, developed throat cancer and then over a series of uh, years go through horrific suffering before he before he died, and then uh, two other people in the family who were also older also uh, sicken and pass away. And I can remember my my mind's reaction to this, which was, "What the hell is going on here? What is this?" What is this? And then some realization in the mind on some very deep level of realizing it's going to happen to everybody. This suffering, this is the way it is. This is, this is what's going to happen. This is how it is. There's nothing that you can do. It's going to be like this. And the mind having a great rebellion against this suffering, a great reaction to it. Uh, a bitterness kind of came. Like, this is one screwed up thing we got going on here. This has got a serious problem. We can develop the need almost to forgive existence for being the way that it is, forgiving samsara for being samsara. You know, our systems have a a very interesting way of working with suffering. We're geared to notice it. The mind is geared to be attentive to this and to try to avoid it. And it's a great paradox that we sometimes respond to injury and suffering in a way that never lets our 
lets ourselves forget it, that kind of keeps it alive, that keeps it going. And part of this is biological. So we know, for instance, that traumatic memories are stored in a different way than other memories are stored. They're stored in a way that has a lot of alarms and flashing lights associated with them that kind of tell the, the... the body-mind, to watch out, to take care, it might happen again. It's almost like there's trip wires all around um, these particular kinds of memories and associations. So, you know, anything that uh, comes up that's uh, remotely uh, associated with this can set off the return or the re- renewal of uh, fear, anger, fear response. It's almost as if our system says, uh, be on guard, you know, you got to be careful, it could, it could happen again, hold on, you better be prepared. And in this sense, you know, this primal part of our system has our best interest at heart, right? It doesn't want us to, to get messed up by something like that happening again. And yet to keep our past suffering alive is to prevent, is to help prevent future uh, suffering. In order to prevent future suffering is suffering in and of itself. It's like I got to keep it going because if I, if I don't remember this, if I don't remember this, then I'm going to suffer in the future. So I got to suffer now, so I'm ready to suffer in the future. So the question is, how can we break the hold of this suffering and our attachment to it? And how can we open the mind to the possibility of freedom, of living in the present with wisdom, with the past taking its place as the past? And the answer to this question uh, is the practice of forgiveness and the other forms of bhavana that support it. And you can see the wisdom in this kind of practice because Unskillful actions, whether they're our own or that of others, can create a kind of cul-de-sac where where we're locked into an unwholesome relationship with the suffering caused by those deeds. And there can be an unskillful kind of fusion to the very source of this suffering, whether it's a person, uh, an event, or an action. So there needs to be a way to break out of this, a a way to uh, break loose from this round and round of dukkha or suffering, which sometimes can be so strong that it seems to defy the law of the impermanence of things in its persistence. And without this capacity to move forward, to let go and let things change, we can be bonded to our most painful experiences and closed around them. The Buddha says in uh, the, the Dhammapada, you know, there's a way that we can think, have a habit of, of thinking about these places of uh, difficulty and woundedness. He says, uh, he gives the example of, of someone thinking about an injury in a particular kind of way. And he says, um, someone who's thinking, look at how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. 
this person thinking these thoughts over and over and over and over again. And he says, live with such thoughts and you live in hate. And forgiveness is the way out. It's the, begin, the way to begin again, to unstick what has adhered to suffering and judgment. The way to thaw what's been frozen, to begin to let things move again, to release. And in the process, the potential of opening choices and options other than just being chained to a cycle of reactivity to a memory of a past experience. Now it's really important to say that forgiveness is a process. It's not an act of will. I don't know about you, but I've certainly had experiences where I have tried just through an act of will to let go of something that wasn't ready to go. You ever tried that? I mean, and sometimes that's one of the first reactions to to something uh, that requires forgiveness is like, it's okay, it's okay, I'm not going to think about it, it's all right, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, trying to get rid of it like it's a booger stuck on the end of your finger. It's like, be gone, be gone, right? It does, it doesn't go. So it's not an act of will, but the intention to forgive is essential to begin the process. So the intention to forgive is the first thing. And that in itself is part of a decision that is a choice coming from wisdom, which is to no longer to attach to the painful present results of unskillful actions of ourselves and others. We understand it's in our interest to let go. Right? It's not about the other person. It's in our interest to let go, to no longer insist on tell, ignoring a truth or telling ourselves a story in a way that gives us so much suffering. So in the earlier quote from the Buddha, the, the Buddha was really pointing to the way this man was telling the story back to himself over and over and over again. It's not like that didn't happen to him. He obviously was set upon and robbed and thrown down, but it was how his mind was reflecting on the experience, how the mind was telling it to himself again and again in a particular kind of way that was unskillful and was actually keeping the whole thing going. So an important piece here is in working with forgiveness, timing is important. So we have to be ready for the undertaking, which can be quite challenging, even arduous. And there needs to be enough stability of heart and mind and enough safety to undertake this practice. So sometimes it's premature to actually consider forgiveness. Sometimes we're still suffering from the original injury. We're still bleeding, literally or metaphorically. And if this, this is the case, then we really need to tend to 
ourselves first and to restore our own well-being and safety. Because we, we can't forgive unless we feel at least somewhat safe. So often we can begin this process in a very gradual kind of way. So we might need to go out several rings of consideration. So an example of how to frame this as a very beginning or very introductory step in forming the intention to move towards forgiveness is we could uh, entertain the possibility that we might at some point consider maybe forgiving. That's a step, and sometimes that's a, a very big step. Uh, there's another piece about forgiveness here, too. And it has to do with the fact that it's not about papering it over, covering it up, or minimizing So this forgiveness doesn't mean denial. It doesn't mean we minimize the the damage done or we blur accountability, and in fact, quite the contrary. So consider this aspect of harming. And harming, of course, is the circumstances under which we would be needing to think about forgiveness, whether for ourselves or for others. But consider harming. Harming, uh, in many, if not most cases, happens when uh, basic sila, basic uh, morality, was forgotten or ignored. So then... From that come the unskillful actions of body, uh, speech, and mind, which cause damage. So we need to acknowledge that and be clear about responsibility and take a look at what happened that led to the screw-up. So part of the examination needs to be to... Uh, consider how the unwholesome actions arose in the first place and what causes and conditions led to the actions that did the damage. So in other words, we actually have to bring some consciousness to it instead of avoiding that peace. But we have to bring consciousness to it in a way that um, is balanced. So that goes to the point that what we're really talking about then is developing the capacity of the mind to actually reflect on, to think (coughs) in an analytical and interested uh, way about what happened and why it happened in order to gain some insight into how it all came about in the first place.
And there's a, in the middle length discourse, uh, discourses of the Buddha, there's a, a chapter uh, about advice that the Buddha gave to his son Rahula. And I would love to know the backstory to this, this whole section, but I kind of have a feeling that Rahula may have been caught doing a little bit of fibbing. Uh, so anyway, he wound up having a, a talk with Dad, and Dad gave him a major download about uh, harming and non-harming and how to know if you're harming and what to do if you're harming. And, um, and, and one of the things that the Buddha told his son is that if you've made a mistake in uh, in word or action that's caused harm, you need to re- recognize it and admit it, that that's an important thing. And interestingly enough, he told him, yeah, and you should acknowledge the unwholesome action to your, your teacher. And uh, the translation is to open it to your teacher. You need to open it up instead of keeping it covered up, trying to to shove it under uh, the mattress. And then you need to undertake restraint in the future and uh, commit yourself to not doing it again. So so maybe the, the Buddhists and the, the Catholics aren't so <laughs> completely different in this respect uh, at all because it certainly sounds a little bit like uh, confession to me. And interestingly enough, I've, I've found... Um, on a number of uh, occasions when I've been working with uh, people on retreat, that I've had the experience where people have come uh, in the course of a meeting or the course of an interview or course of, of a requested meeting and told me about things that they have done that they are now experiencing remorse for and wanting to talk about it, wanting to open it up, wanting to to ventilate it as part of their process of being able to find a more skillful, more wholesome relationship to it. And I always tell them, thank you for telling me that and it's really skillful that you have because one of the the first things um, that can help you is being willing to actually acknowledge what you did and to recognize that what you did was unskillful. So you've taken a, a first and very important step in strengthening your ability uh, to really relate to this in a way that's wholesome and, and wise and beneficial for you and and for others. And I mention this, uh, at least in part, because one of the things that we sometimes find in spiritual practice is, and this may have been true for some of you while you're here on retreat, but almost everybody who does spiritual practice intensively at some point, or more than one point sometimes, is goes through a cycle where they basically have something happen like a life <laughs> review where, and this is part of the purification process, 
where there can arise in the mind an awareness of, of things that have been done in the past that now in the present you experience as uh, painful because there's a, a recognition of the lack of, of skill involved and, and perhaps the harm uh, that was done to self or others because of it. And of course, we can also have the arising of uh, memories and other things related to harm that has, has been done to us. And this is all part of the purification process of mind. I told somebody in um, one of the small, I told one of the small groups that I had um, the experience recently of uh, teaching at a retreat. And when I was looking down the, the list of retreatants to attend, seeing the name of uh, somebody there, an unusual first name, and I had... Um, this experience of going, oh God, I hope it's not the same one by this name. And having this memory of being like in fifth grade and there was this girl in my class and I was a little mean to her. You know, I kind of I kind of teased her. You know, she was a little bit pudgy and I kind of teased her. Karmic blowback. <laughs> but... You know, when I when I saw the name, it was like, right? You know, the the mind remembers, right? We remember. You know that that stuff can, as as the mind gets w- more pure. You know, so here I am. It's like, you know, a lot of years later, cringing at the sight of the name. So you know, part of what happens to us is our our moral sensitivity deepens, right? Becomes, we become more morally sensitive, right? With our spiritual growth. So let's talk about this uh, remorse and remedy. So I was describing to you uh, an experience of remorse that I've, I had recently. In the case of our own unskillful actions, we can identify what we did that was unskillful. And by opening to the harm that was caused, we can allow ourselves to feel why, why we don't want to do anything like that again. And with that can come a resolve and a sincere heart not to repeat the error. And in order to make this uh, commitment to non-harming, to renew this commitment to non-harming, we need to register the painful nature of the outcome of the unskillful actions. And sometimes there's more than that that we need to do, right? Sometimes we need to take specific steps to refrain and uh, protect ourselves and others from future harm. So that might involve doing something like, uh, okay, I'm going to get some um, psychological counseling for this tendency of mind, this conditioned tendency of mind that tends to act out in particular ways. Or I'm going to join a 12-step 
uh, program because one of the things that's going on when I really screw up is there's been some ingestion of something. And when I do that, I forget, I forget myself. I forget, you know, my own understanding and, and standards. And sometimes then also we make amends or restitution. Or if we're the person that's been injured, we allow someone else to apologize or make amends to us. And by doing this, we release the tie to others that has the nature of hatred or fear or resentment, uh, guilt and shame. And I want to talk about this uh, discernment around guilt and shame. There's a way we can take responsibility for our actions which is not skillful. And that's to use our moral failings as proof positive that we are bad and worthless human beings. Right? Isn't that sometimes what we do when we recognize that we've we've screwed up in s- some sort of way and there's there's been harm caused that we kind of like turn on, on ourselves in a very aggressive fashion. But you know, you know, this isn't skillful. And in a way, it's, it's quite self-centered if you think about. Because instead of focusing on the behaviors we need to change and taking responsibility for doing so, we kind of collapse into this kind of reverse narcissism, making it all about us, right? It's all about us on some essentialist level. And of course, shame and guilt are suffering states. And when we relate to them in uh, unskillful ways, it undercuts the real work that needs to be done, which is the work that needs to be done to liberate the heart and mind and actually avoid future suffering. So getting caught in guilt and shame disempowers the mind because it loses confidence in its potential to evolve towards greater wisdom. Right? So we want to, want to avoid that trap. That. So then a, a next piece of working forgiveness working with forgiveness is we need to open to the truth about what continued present suffering there may be. So even after working with forgiveness, even after uh, doing forgiveness practice, maybe um, doing forgiveness practice in a, a dedicated way, there may still be things that arise in the heart and mind. You know, we may work with forgiveness and feel like, okay, I've got that cleared. That's good. You know, I can finally feel forgiveness towards my mother. I can finally uh, feel forgiveness for myself for this, this thing that I did. And it may clear. And yet, at some points, some of this may come back. If the causes and conditions are there, that support the re-arising of some of this uh, conditioned pattern of suffering, it may indeed arise. 
And so there can be continued arisings of things like anger, sadness, fear, remorse, guilt. And then the work is to learn to work with those with love without closing around the difficult feelings or without identifying with them. In other words, treating it just like you would treat the arising of anger, sadness, fear, remorse, or guilt, or any of the other difficult emotions or the hindrances when they come up any other time. Right? Treating it the same, the same way, relating it in the, in the same kind of way, using the tools that you've learned um, or will learn in mindfulness practice to be able to meet those states with love and, and balance. Now you could kind of think of these, this, the, the recurrence of some of the stuff around um, these experiences as a kind of a karmic residue. So it's a little bit like space junk. You know, there was some like original collision of a meteor with a satellite or meteors together or something and it broke apart. But it's still kind of out there in smaller particulates. And when you cross over the the belt where this stuff is floating, you may experience some of it again. But the difference is you know what it is. You know where it came from. The reactivity decreases over time in relationship to this. So there isn't the kind of identification with it or the kind of suffering that there has been previously. So we commit ourselves to working with the arising of this in a way that actually supports our liberation. And, you know, some of this might involve doing things like getting psychological support to work with some of the the more deeply conditioned patterns. And especially in the case of um, situations where there's the arising uh, of material related to trauma, there are some uh, wonderful new methods now that help uh, the body-mind unfreeze. Remember I said earlier, traumatic memories in particular are stored in a certain kind of way so they're easily set off. There are ways to work uh, directly with the body using mindfulness. Uh, A primary way of doing this is called somatic experiencing where you can basically train the mind to open in a graduated kind of way to this kind of thing without it getting wiped out, without it getting sucked down into the vortex of the suffering pattern, without it getting overwhelmed. It can gradually over time tame this. And that's a really uh, important uh, tool to have to assist the body and mind in learning how to let go. So a few more points. I want to talk about reconciliation. So we've talked about forgiveness as a way of altering our present relationship to uh, suffering 
and harm which has its roots in the past. Reconciliation uh, is a related topic and we can define that as an attempt to repair and reestablish relationship between or among the parties involved in a situation of harming. So that's where an attempt is actually made to restore trust, restore relationship. And, you know, there are a number of uh, stories of this out there. So uh, a famous recent one is a story about Nelson Mandela, who, of course, was in prison for many, many years in South Africa. And when he was freed and actually became the leader of South Africa, he invited to his inauguration uh, his jailer as his guest. And the guy came. And on a larger scale, South Africa had the experience of setting up what they called uh, truth and reconciliation commissions. And the idea was at the end of apartheid, there were people out there who in the, the struggle to end apartheid had and to defend apartheid, had committed crimes, had harmed other people. And they set up this mechanism where if the people who did the harming came forward and basically confessed it all, gave all the details of what they did, took responsibility for it, um, acknowledged their error, gave information that would might help, for instance, the survivors of people that had been killed, that there wasn't going to be the same kind of punishment as you might think would be forthcoming in that kind of situation. You know, another story, a famous story of reconciliation is Congressman John Lewis, who is a congressman from Georgia, African-American, who was the head of SNCC during the, the, the heavy voting rights uh, period and the March on Washington period. And so we're talking the early 1960s, mid-1960s. And he, as a young man, was was beaten unconscious uh, while in an unarmed demonstration, nearly died. And he told this story recently of being in his office at Washington and having the son of one of the men who viciously beat him, call the office and say, you know, my father's an old man now. He's, you know, he's getting ready to die. And this, what he did to you is on his conscience and it's really weighing on him. Will you, uh, can, can you allow us to come and talk to you because he wants to tell you Uh, that he really regrets what he did. And John Lewis said, allowed it. He welcomed him and there was this this meeting and this forgiveness. And and, uh, Congressman Lewis talked about this in a very moving way. 
But sometimes this way of bridging back with others, of creating connection or reconnecting with others, building a a bridge again or building a bridge for the first time, really is not possible or desirable. Um, You know, sometimes uh, you have to consider the big picture and, and the wisdom in relationship to this. I think Larry in his talk the other night was talking about what is referred to as idiot compassion. So an example of this, for instance, that that I've read about in the newspaper is I've read a couple of different times about um, churches um, allowing someone who was convicted and sent to prison for you know, abusing children to come to work at Sunday school because, you know, they've been forgiven by Jesus and, you know, they want to be welcomed back into the flock. Well, you know, that's stupid. (laughs) Right? So, and sometimes, you know, we can take these ideas of, and these ideals of, forgiveness and reconciliation and kind of lay them on ourselves and lay them on others in a way that is really unskillful. You know, in an earlier part of my life, I, I worked with, uh, in shelters for um, uh, women who were battered and their children. And I can't tell you the, the number of times, you know, I had the conversation with people about you know, the Bible tells you that you should forgive and forgive any number of times, which is true, that is is what is said. But it, it doesn't say, therefore, that means you're morally obligated to return to a relationship where someone's likelihood of uh, re-victimizing you is very high, Right? So when we're thinking about reconciliation, there are circumstances where it's definitely not indicated. The best thing that could, could happen would be the forgiveness work to be done internally and there be no relationship, no external relationship with the, the individual uh, bound up in the harming at all. And that's not like a spiritual flaw or a spiritual weakness or anything. That's wisdom and that's discernment. So there's no rule about reconciliation. You know, you, you might attempt an in-person reconciliation or not. Maybe they don't want to hear nothing from you. <laughs> you know, maybe the, the biggest favor uh, you could give them is to, to leave, leave them alone. Um, you know, you could communicate with the people involved or not communicate with them, have a connection with them or not have a connection. So the, this is a, a wisdom connect, uh, question, and you have to consider all the circumstances and the context. Um, and the, the last point, or one of the last points to consider here, too, is the place of Remembering. So, 
there is a story for times when there has been harm and whether we've uh, been harmed or whether we've done harm, there is a story there. I was talking earlier about our relationship with, with the story and how to break the chain of suffering in relationship to the story and the event and the present experiences of the, the residue related to the whole thing. But of course, remembering with discernment is not adhering to suffering. So there's a way that we can remember and, and many times need to remember something about it. Right? We talked earlier about coming to clarity about what was involved and what happened and the causes and the conditions and the specifics and the rest of it so that the mind kind of gr- has a grasp of the template of like how something like this could happen, you know, how we could do something like this or you know, how, how it came about as a way of bringing consciousness to it, bringing awareness to it. You remember um, in the tsunami that happened uh, a number of years ago in Japan? You know, the one that really messed up Fukushima nuclear plant. One of the things that was reported in in that afterwards was um, that in many of those communities there were ancient stone markers that had been placed away from the shoreline that basically said on them something to the effect like, you don't want to build any closer to the water than this because this is where it came, how high it came last time, right? And those things were ignored. And of course there are great historical tragedies which have happened that we need to remember. Because if we don't remember them, they could repeat themselves, right? You know, coming out of the Holocaust experience, of course, one of the the phrases that was used uh, over and over and over again is never forget. We can never forget. We should never forget. What are the lessons learned? What must we remember? You know, and we as a society have kind of a a very short social memory. I mean, it's very uh, clear to me thinking about a lot of the political polarization in the country is the Civil War... Uh, actually isn't completely over. The residue from that, from the the residue from uh, slavery and some of the other activities around the founding of the country, actually, it's still resonating. It's still there. So we want to remember in a way that doesn't adhere to the suffering. So can we tell the story with love?
There is multi-generational trauma. There are historical harm and revenge cycles. You know, we see this in human history over and over again. To change the rules, to develop the capacity to do something different, to do something different than blind response to uh, a deeply con- of a deeply conditioned and unskillful nature can liberate us all. Because otherwise we're at, we're at the mercy. <laughs> we're at the mercy of the suffering that has already been created. We're bound into it. We're part of the reactive cycle. So just to conclude, we can let our minds rest in these particular truths. The first, all beings have the potential to purify their minds, and this potential cannot be lost no no matter how many obscurations of mind there may be. We don't lose this potential by our unskillful actions, nor do others. A second point. All beings are the heirs to their karma, and we and they are always planting seeds that will arise in our mind streams and in our lives. It's in our interest to plant the seeds of our own happiness and well-being and that of others. Third point. All beings, unless fully awakened, cause suffering to themselves and others through their ignorance and the actions flowing from it. We may vow to non-harming, and yet we will. The fourth point. The past is gone. All things are impermanent. A bell once rung cannot be unrung. However, we may deal with its echo in the present in a way that minimizes the suffering of ourselves and others. Aversion is unpleasant and painful. To live in hatred and resentment is to forego our own happiness and letting go is true peace. And just to close with another quote from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada. Look at how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Abandon such thoughts and live in love. So let's just let that settle through the body for a minute.
May all beings know forgiveness and peace.